Hi, and welcome to the Thank God for the Beatles podcast, episode 003. If this is your first time, thank you so much for joining us. If you're returning, we really appreciate it. I'm Karen, your co-host, and today we're going to talk about the Beatles recording techniques, their innovations, their inventions, um, all of the great ideas that they uh, undertook with George Martin and his staff at Abbey Road to truly make influential music that has impacted how artists record today. And uh, it's, uh, it can get pretty geeky tech here. And in order to have this conversation, I needed one person to join me tonight. And that is my dear friend, Scott Hamilton, who's gonna be our co-host. And let me just share a little bit about Scott. Scott is one hell of a musician. He's a brilliant producer, engineer, songwriter, and someone who can play all the instruments, although his primary instrument is drums, but he can play them all, and he can hear how everything works sonically within songs, take things apart, and honestly, you can recreate songs to the dime. It's, your ear is unmatched as far as anyone that I know, and you know, my father had perfect pitch as a trumpet player with Woody Herman, so I have the utmost respect for you, and um, thank you for joining us, Scott. Well, thanks for having me, Karen. I really appreciate that, and uh, you're right, the drums uh, are my main instrument, and I have something in common with Ringo Starr, actually, is that we are both left-handed people playing on a right-handed kit, and so I have a lot of empathy for the difficulty that that presents. Uh, I'm very, very left-handed. And uh, so I have some unusual fill patterns and I keep a second floor tom to my left uh, to do some things with that as well. But uh, I feel like I have a kind of a kindred spirit thing there with Ringo on the uh, lefty righty thing. And do some of your techniques match up to what, how he did things? Is it Yeah, because similar? there's space uh, that, that, you know, I can't do like a really fast, like heavy metal, all the way down the drums because it's, it's just backwards for me. So I have a lot more spaciness and, and, and uh, air in my fills, uh, which he does too. So I, and he talks about that and I, I totally get that about his playing and uh, I can relate to that as a fellow drummer. I think they did a, a video with like Dave Grohl or something and they were kind of uh, analyzing Ringo's technique and saying how being a left-handed player made him unique. Yeah, so I can, I can relate to that. Now, how do we know each other, Scott? Well, it's a long story. We, uh, <laughs> we've known each other for 30 years now and uh, I had moved to Washington DC in 1990, just after college. And uh, I put an ad in a uh, probably defunct now city paper is what it was mm -hmm. called. And it was a classified ad saying I'm looking for fellow musicians to play with, to jam with, to record with. And I listed a whole bunch of bands because I have uh, a bunch of influences. And, uh, uh, and one of them happened to be the Beatles and that caught Karen's eye. And so she responded to my ad and uh, we met at a restaurant, I believe an Italian place uh, in Bethesda, right on Cordell Avenue, if I remember correctly. That's right. And, That's right. and, uh, and just had a really wonderful conversation from there. And uh, started uh, uh, writing some music together and playing together and just jamming and of course talking about the Beatles uh, uh, quite a bit uh, as we were doing all that and 30 years later we've done uh, several records together and and uh, maintained a, a wonderful friendship through 30 years. And you know we were really a part of the home studio recording at that time with the I had a Tascam Porta Studio and I got a fancier uh, four-track Porta Studio, and then I ultimately got an eight track, which we used to record our demos. And then we took our songs and recorded in a 24 track studio and uh, which was a big deal at the time. It was, yeah. it was, it was a luxury and, and uh, shoot, even having a eight track at home was, was above and beyond what most people had. And I just felt like a kid in the candy store. I could actually record drums and stereo and just, I thought that was just the greatest thing. And, um, and now we have unlimited tracks and you just kind of take that for granted. But, uh, you know, back then you really had to choreograph not only your recording, like what went on which tracks and which ones you bounced, but also your mix down was a big choreographed routine where you're pulling faders up and down at certain points in the song. And so the, the mix itself was a performance, not just the uh, automated things that we do now with the digital technology. So hold that thought because we'll get to that as we talk about the Beatles early recording. But one thing that uh, Scott and I were really fortunate to do is that we were able to go to the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia, 
to listen to George Martin speak about recording Sgt. Pepper, probably in the late 90s. Yeah. Like the 25th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper. He had written a book. There was a special on maybe PBS or something about the making of Sgt. Pepper. And you think about how lucky we are. I, I, it was a night I'll never forget. Just, I was just struck by how humble he was too and, and how he talked about his experiences and what an honor it was to work with the Beatles. And yet the Beatles owe so much to him in terms of so many of the things that we credit to the Beatles as being innovative were actually George Martin uh, influenced and his, his team and his staff. And uh, he was just so incredibly humble, but just, just so pleased also to talk about uh, his memories and working with them. And it was just, just to see a legend like that in person was just something I'll never forget. And not only that, but his experience and his willingness to break the rules at EMI and to let things go. Uh, I think that he just realized and, and saw the, the desire and the passion within the Beatles to do so. So uh, in those early days in recording that first album, it was they had basically two sessions scheduled for one day. And they added a third schedule, and this was the Please Please Me album. I believe it was in February of 63. And what was interesting is that one of the tape operators, they were breaking after the second session for lunch. Maybe that was the, after the first session, but breaking for lunch, and normally the artists would leave. And the Beatles did not. They stayed, they drank milk, and they rehearsed their songs. And the people who were working at the studio were in shock because no, nobody did that. And it just goes to show you right then and there, that's the essence of who they were. Yeah, for sure. Everything was so regimented and so scripted in terms of time and, and the, uh, the staff there wore suits and ties. I mean, it was, it was dress up uh, to do the recording and, and that seems kind of silly now, but it was a very highly scripted on off with times and, and uh, there, was no, there was no overtime. So you either got it in the time that you had or you didn't get it. And uh, so, so lots of changes, not only technologically that happened in the 60s, but also just the, the process of recording and how, how we go about creating records uh, really changed. And uh, the Beatles experience in the 60s uh, had a lot to do with that and a lot of things that are standard now. So tell me how that first album would have been recorded. Would it be primarily live with the mics and, and the, uh, you know, the, the guitar and maybe the drums on one first track? Or how would they do that? Yeah, the first two albums actually were recorded in just uh, two track. Uh, just, uh, and I believe they just, they were more interested in the mono tracks uh, back then more than stereo even. Uh, but it was all cut live and uh, there's no overdubbing. And so you had to not only get your performance down well, but you also had all the levels right. Uh, you had to have a, a sound check that was very precise, uh, that uh, the drums weren't too loud or too quiet and the guitars were in the right place. And, and so everything had to be just right. And then you had to play it through. And so they would just play the whole song through over and over again until they got a take that they really liked. And so the first two records, uh, that was largely the way they did that. And, you know, gosh, we take for granted now that we can go back and fix things and says there's no, there's no, uh, repairing of, of flubs on a track uh, like there is now. Well, I believe that at the time, George Martin, you know, by, by rule at EMI, they had to record on two tracks, but the classical artists could have the four-track tape machine. So he lobbied to get permission to be able to use that four-track, and then they brought that in, and they, I think they only saved maybe the fourth track for overdubs, harmonies. Mm -hmm. Could you explain for people who maybe who aren't familiar with the bouncing technique of what, why it was important to be efficient and to be wise and to pre-plan perhaps your recording. Yeah, yeah. So the first, I believe the first Beatles record done on four track was I Want to Hold Your Hand. I believe that was the first four track recording they did. And so what you do when you bounce, and this is something we even did when we had our own four track and our, even our eight track, we could do it. So you have four tracks, uh, unlike a regular uh, cassette, which uh, a regular cassette player just has a playback head, one for each side. A four track has four playback and four record heads. And so you can split the tape into basically four little micro units where each track is, has its own space on that tape. And so that creates the four tracks. And so what you would do is you would typically record 
your instrumental tracks on, let's say, one, two, and three, but then, oh no, we've got all these other things we want to overdub, vocals and things. We only got one track left. What do we do? So what they would do is they would do a bounce down and they would take the three tracks, one, two, and three, and mix them together, get it sounding the balance as best they could, and then they would put that on track number four. And then they could erase over tracks one, two, and three and put more tracks on there. So, uh, you, so you lose the original first three. Say if you bounced them down, you would lose like the first, if you bounced the first two, you would lose them. Yeah. Once you race over them, yeah, once you've bounced it and you start to race over, there's no going back. So you have to be very careful that what you get on that bounce is exactly what you want. Uh, there's a couple of problems with it. One is you do lose a little fidelity when you bounce. Uh, anytime you're uh, with analog tape that you're moving from one uh, uh, cassette to another uh, part of a tape, you're going to lose a little fidelity. You're going to add a little more tape hiss. Um, and the other thing too is you have to have it perfect. Uh, it has to be right because uh, there's no going back once you start to erase over those other three tracks. And so theoretically you could do this forever, but uh, uh, the more you bounce, the more you lose uh, the original uh, fidelity of the sound. So uh, they, they tried to do it just once usually when they would do this and then they would fill up the other three tracks with the vocals. So on that first album with the song Misery, it's where George Martin's uh, expert expertise came into play where he, uh, I don't know that he was that happy with uh, George Harrison's guitar work on the song for maybe a solo. It was lacking something. And so his idea was to record a piano piece to mimic the guitar at half speed. And I believe that when you play it, it plays twice as fast. So it kind of mirrored, it made this very weird sounding ding, 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 ding. Remember, you know, that part of the, I don't yeah, know, yeah, the song. Yeah, yeah. So that was the beginning of a technique that they used throughout their career. Rocky Raccoon, it sounds like the, uh, the dance hall. What do you call those old, uh, uh, Kind of a saloon piano, saloon like that. style yeah, piano, yeah. in my life, which mm -hmm. we all thought was a harpsichord. It's not. It's the piano, which is again has this wind up, recorded at a different speed. Mm -hmm. um, you never give me your money. I'm sure there are a couple other ones as well. So interesting. Again, the Beatles are probably saying, "Yeah, do whatever," you know, because they were so differential to George as they should be. Yeah. And back then they had to be very clever uh, with their, uh, how they did the tape speed too, because some of the earlier machines didn't actually have a very speed slider on it that you could actually change the speed. So they actually had to use what's called an oscillator and use that to actually drive the motor of the tape uh, head. And they would vary the, basically they vary the electric current that went to the tape head to slow it down or speed it up. And so uh, back in the early days, they had to really be creative and uh, really get into their physics knowledge to, to create uh, variable speed with, uh, with uh, the tape machines that they were using. And you know, these engineers that worked with George Martin, they were very young. Uh, I believe that Jeff Emmerich started working at Abbey Road when he was like 15 or 16. Yeah, that's right. And imagine, you know, we'll, maybe we'll get to that later as, they, as he took over the lead role of engineer when he was probably 19 years old. And it, yeah. so it's just, at that part is mind boggling. So uh, one of the things, uh, what do we know about mono versus stereo? We know that it was a mono mix really up until Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. That the stereo mix was like a afterthought that they wanted to mix for, for vinyl. They wanted to mix for mono. What's the benefit of mono? Well, I think it was largely they were th thinking about what most people were playing their music on back then, uh, that uh, stereo had been around since the 50s. Uh, but uh, uh, you got to think, first of all, AM radio was in mono. Uh, and that was the, 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 the largest uh, FM radio was, was, didn't have the market share that AM radio had back then. So they were thinking about radio play, but then also uh, people were listening on single earpieces or on a mono record player at home. And so they wanted to make the sound as, as accessible for what they thought most people were going to be listening to it on. And they spent a lot more time perfecting the mono mixes than they did the stereo mixes. And if you listen to the early stereo mixes, they're kind of funny. They, they have 
everything like the vocals are all on one side and, and the guitars are all on another and the drums maybe all and it's it's this extremely hard panned left right type of thing which I thought was kind of fun actually because you could actually listen to the stereo mixes and pick out things and you could isolate I, things and isolate things yeah yes. yes. if you listen to this is a this is a little geeky uh, thing but if you listen to the old stereo mix of Day Tripper you will hear a couple of times where one person's guitar drops out uh, a couple yes. of times in the verses. The, the guitar just drops out for a second and it comes back on. Probably it was a mistake and they probably just pulled it down uh, to, to, to get rid of it. And in the mono mix, you'd never notice that. But in the stereo mix, when you hear just the guitars by themselves, you can hear these little dropouts on the guitars. And I remember being in a high school band and we played Day Tripper and I, I practiced to that by listening to it on my Walkman. I'm dating myself how old I am now. Uh, and I would just, come, I would have one of the speakers off and I would just hear the guitars and the bass and I didn't have Ringo's drum track. So I could literally like do like almost like a, a, a drummer minus one type of thing with the actual Day Tripper stereo recording. The other thing that was, and, and I remember George Harrison complaining about this is in those uh, stereo mixes, um, how some of the percussion was just was just so loud, like the tambourine and uh, in, in, in Day Tripper again is just overwhelmingly loud. And you just don't have the same kind of balance and, and the, the nuance that they had with the mono mixes. And even up to Sgt. Pepper, you know, when we're getting into more sophisticated uh, recording times, they spent three weeks uh, doing the mono master of, of Sgt. Pepper, and I think they spent two days on the stereo. So even the seminal record like that, uh, they, they just, mono was still king. Well, you know, for the, I, I don't know if it was the mono mix, but in If I Fell, when Paul's voice cuts as he's singing, it, his voice goes out, and there's a whole website that's devoted to all the different, what you can hear on the mono versus the stereo and the little fixes and how John and Paul would mess up the lyrics. And if you listen carefully, I think you can hear how they were way off on some of these things. So it is yeah. interesting. And it's so interesting. What uh, Jeff Emmerich said is he said that he prefers the mono mixes to the stereo. He doesn't even care for any of the CD releases. And this is obviously before he passed away like two years ago, um, that the songs were meant to be listened on vinyl and were meant to be listened to mono. And for those mono, it's everything sounded in the center, right? Is that kind of the, the goal? Yep. It's all kind of blended together. And I, I love stereo and I, I love when I record panning is a very important part of my recording process. And that's where panning means where in the stereo field is a particular instrument. And that to me is, is very important to make sure you're, parts are not competing with each other and and each each part has its own space in the stereo field and so uh that to me is is crucial in the recording process and uh i i wonder what jeff would have thought of the the newest remastered sergeant pepper uh that uh, i got that a couple years ago and it it's mind-blowing to me there's things on there i've listened to that record hundreds of times and there's things on there i never heard until i heard the remastered uh, stereo it's just it was like a, a brand new experience and it was uh uh, I, I like the, I like the remix of Sgt. Pepper. I'm not a fan of the White Album remix. What What do you not like about that one? Uh, I can I think that's again some of the percussion came up too much. I think it should have been. I think it was a reason why it was put down a little mm -hmm. bit, and I I just felt like it wasn't quite as it should have been as it should have sounded as the Beatles wanted it. So uh, do you have that super deluxe? I, have not, I haven't gotten that one. You know what? That is worth every penny and also for the outtakes. And, and I'll just leave it at that. That's well worth getting that. So, you know, what's interesting about the Beatles is that happy accidents and with feedback, uh, John Lennon, they were, and they were all recording in the studio one day and probably talking to Paul. And he put down his uh, acoustic Gibson guitar that, that had a single pickup um, you know, right by the sound semi semi uh, hollow body, right? Yes. Yeah. Laid it against a uh, amp that was on, and it made that I made that sound, and they were like, "Oh my God, what's that?" And so they they liked it. Now Abbey Road and EMI had a rule against feedback like that or distortion, which you cannot do that ever. So that was like at one session, and then they purposely brought it back for John's, John and Paul's I Feel Fine and recreated it. And then I think 
Paul hit like an A note on the bass and it That's let right. that ring out. And then it went into that. That was like the first number one single that had that feedback. Again, it's the openness and the willingness of George Martin to say, let's, we're going to break the rules here. Yeah. So. And, it, and it fits sociologically so well with the 60s in terms of experimenting and mind expanding and pushing boundaries. And it just, I, I love how the, the, the zeitgeist of the 60s also translated into Abbey Road Studios that we're going to push some boundaries and we're going to, uh, you know, like on Paperback Writer, we're going to crank the bass guitar up and make it loud enough to make people's needles jump off their, their turntables. And, and uh, Which was a valid concern. They thought that it would jump off. Yeah. You know, and that the... Uh, it was Jeff Emmerich who I think said that they were happy that this certain guy cut the the tape or made it happen. Otherwise, if they'd used someone else, they might have pulled it back down. So as the Beatles start to take a break from touring and this insane pressure to make singles, to produce singles, and the singles were not to be on albums, and they finally had some time to record. And so they started with... started. Uh, recording with Robert Soule, and I think that that was like October 12th to November 15th. And that to me, mind-boggling. To, to make a record like that in five weeks. <laughs> mind-boggling that yeah. it takes five weeks sometimes to write a song. Yeah. To edit that. So here's Rubber Soul, and one of the things is, was the song Rain. What do you notice, and, and what can you share with us about the drums? Well, I think it's actually Ringo, and Ringo actually says it himself, it's one of his proudest drumming moments. He does some really cool fills. And again, they're just off, off, uh, off the traditional fill spots. And, and he's doing this really cool interplay with the hi-hat and the snare. So the playing itself is some of Ringo's best playing. But the other thing that you'll notice about it is, is the pitch. Uh, that you'll, and you can especially tell on the cymbal crashes. That's a, if you ever want to tell a Beatles track that's been uh, pitched down on the drums and manipulated, yeah. listen to the cymbal crashes because they, they have a distinctive lower ring to them. And you can hear that on rain pretty clearly. And the snare drum has kind of a, a very low, almost John Bonham-like uh, quality to it in terms of the, uh, the pitch. And the guitars were pitched down on that too. Uh, so they were recorded faster and then uh, the tape was slowed down. So it just gives it a different tonal quality uh, for the drums as well as for the guitar. And it just creates a, a unique sound and uh, something unlike uh, what other people have been doing. And it was a, uh, the, the use of the backward, backward uh, last phrase that John said. And the, the backstory on that was, you know, they all have a different story. George, uh, John Lennon says that he was stoned and he was home and he put the tape in into the tape reel the wrong way and That's what I heard, came yeah. in and said, this is brilliant. <laughs> and then... George Harrison's like, yeah, that's what happened. And then George Martin's like, no, I used to do this with my, you know, the comedy music that I used to do. I suggested it. So it is funny to read the different accounts of who's yeah. doing what. But Jeff Emmerich states in his book, he says, once they figured out that backwards, everything then turned to backwards forever. Guitars, you name it. Uh, and that, that's so interesting. Uh, again, it's the kids in the candy store. Like, yeah. oh, give us more. Exactly. And, and using, using the studio as a, as a writing uh, tool, I think, is what really made the, the mid to late 60s Beatles special, is that uh, you didn't have to come in with your songs all prepped and ready to go, and you just cut them in the studio. You can actually use the studio space as a way to, to create new music and to create new sounds and to try new things and to see uh, what worked and what didn't work. And some things they tried... Uh, were more successful than others, but uh, just having that kind of freedom to create and use technology at the time and, and to have the freedom to have the free reign of the studio, I think uh, is what led to some of the greatest tracks that came out of that. Well, they had the success and they had the money and the record label allowed them the freedom to take their time because then they started to record till late in the evening, early hours. You know, they had that luxury of doing that. Um, I think that George Martin said, that it was where the recording studio became another instrument of learning how to really just manipulate anything in order to improve the songs. And again, it goes to the genius of the Beatles, which is maybe another band is done within a week. 
oh, those are good enough. Yep, we're good to go. But to do during the rubber sole, to do 15 takes or to do 12 takes, that's a lot. And on rubber sole, uh, Paul's playing, I think, a fuzz bass on Think for Yourself. Mm-hmm. I think he'd gotten the Rickenbacker, which was a solid state bass, one I have back here. And they're using, they went capo crazy. <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah. All these new techniques to bring into the songs. Yeah. The sitar. The sitar. Yeah. Yeah. They're also listening to American music and they hear that it's recorded differently, that it's louder and that the bass is recorded a little bit differently as well. And they wanted, I think that urgency. So it kind of um, leads into, uh, you know, this incredible album of rubber soul, which again, at the time, uh, John Lennon called it their pot album because <laughs> they were influenced by Bob Dylan. And I'm not sure if it was Rubber Soul. I'd have to double check or Revolver, but I, one of the uh, songs, it might've been Paperback Rider or something. They played for Bob Dylan. And what he said, he said, oh, I see you guys are trying to not be seen as kids anymore. I don't think he said it that delicately or that nicely. It was more like a, eh. Mm-hmm. So B.O.B. Bob, just later on, get out of here. Imagine if you're Bob Dylan and then the Beatles are growing like that. Yeah, yeah. And especially when you see a, hear a song like I, I've Just Seen a Face, you know, which is, uh, sounds like a Bob Dylan song. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I guess imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Yeah. Or you've got to hide your uh, love away. Yeah. Now, on I, I've Just Seen a Face, that false start, what version is that on? Is that a stereo or a mono? You know, the... I don't know. Uh, yeah. That's a good question. I don't know if they play I don't know if that's on any of my newer mixes. Hmm. To go back and think about that. So McCartney's bass, Jeff Emmerich, you know, Paul wanted something bigger. And as you were saying with Paperback Rider, tell us what they're doing. What changed? Well, in the older days, I believe that they just mic'd his bass cabinet. They had another ambient mic, maybe five to eight feet away. That was a figure mm-hmm. eight picked up the room mm-hmm. and they might've also done direct, but probably not yet. I don't think, yeah, I think direct came a little bit later, but uh, the, the direct sound was definitely with both the guitars and the bass was something that the, the Beatles started to do quite a bit of. And for those of you who don't know what that means, uh, as opposed to miking an amplifier, like Karen just talked about, um, uh, a direct injection is taking the pickup from the bass guitar or the electric guitar and putting it through what's called a DI box. And a DI box is something that matches the impedance of uh, the flow of uh, the current from the pickup. And it goes directly into the mixing board rather than being mic'd through an amplifier. So it's a way to put the, uh, the sound directly into the board and theoretically directly onto the tape. And uh, this a is very a very clean signal. Very clean signal. Uh, you don't get the room ambiance. It's really just the, the tones and, and all the other frequencies are are kind of canceled out because they're not being picked up by like a room microphone, for example. The other thing it enables you to do is it gets you, it gets you more of a low end, the bottom end of things uh, that they really wanted to capture that uh, uh, that low that low bass. And you, know, you listen to early Beatles records, and the bass is kind of it's in there, but it's not really prominent. And then you start to listen to you know what, what's happening on Rubber Soul and Revolver and and Sergeant Pepper, and uh, he switches over to the Rickenbacker at some point. Uh, but just there's just a real low end presence there. Uh, another thing they started to do to try to get that really rumbly low tone is to uh, to actually use a speaker um, as a uh, as a microphone. Uh, and people don't understand the physics of this, but a, a, a speaker is basically a transducer, so it can it can make signals go either way. And so what they would do is is use a huge cone speaker and put that in front of uh, in front of Paul's cabinet, try to capture you know, with a bigger diaphragm. You can capture more of the more of the the, the low end wave uh, forms that are coming out of that. So you've got a bass speaker and then you've got a loudspeaker like facing each other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and the loudspeaker is being used as a microphone uh, in, in that in that instance. And it's pretty common now. Uh, it, it, I don't know if you've ever noticed uh, drummers uh, now. Uh, you look at a, a drum kit uh, and you'll see like a little disc uh, basically in front of the bass drum. It's a little black disc. It's about the size of a small Frisbee. And you, you might wonder what that is. A uh, good example is this is uh, Questlove from The Roots has one of these on his drums if you look on The Tonight Show. Um, 
it's, it's basically the same thing that they were doing in the 60s, that it's a big diaphragm that's trying to capture the real low tones of the bass drum. And it's the same physics and the same theory, you know, you know 40, 50 years later. Uh, so that's a pretty popular miking technique now with, with bass drums is to not only have the traditional, you know, bass drum, kick, you know, kick drum mic inside the hole, inside the uh, machine, inside the, uh, the bass drum, but also the little machine on the outside capturing. So it's kind of dually miked and that thing, the, the big thing, the big black thing you see is, is capturing the really lower tones and they try to blend that together to get a really nice solid thud out of the bass drum. Now, I've so, also read that they, for Ringo's drums, that his tom-toms were open on the bottom end and so they would mic up through there. And that was yeah. something that was new. They, yeah, Sergeant Pepper, they used maybe seven mics on his. Yeah, well, let's talk about mics because that's that's another huge thing that the, we we thank the Abbey Road and the Beatles uh, st uh, staff for really changing the way things are mic'd. And Ringo's drums is one example of that. Um, back in the early era, in the early '60s, drums were typically you know it's all done in you know one take, and and the drums were typically there was maybe a microphone stuck a couple of uh, feet in front of the bass drum. And then there was maybe an overhead mic kind of dangling over to capture the hi-hat and the toms and everything. So it was just basically two, two mono microphones capturing everything. And one of the themes with the miking with the, uh, the Beatles is close miking. And you hear that on so many tracks. Uh, you know, the sitar I mentioned earlier in Norwegian Wood, uh, you know, just really capturing all those really amazing tones uh, that come out of that instrument. Uh, so having having really close mics there, and then we got to talk about Eleanor Rigby as well. Uh, they, you know they had the double string quartet for that, and they were putting the microphones pretty much right on top of the violins yes. and the violas, and it was freaking out the the session musicians because they were just it was so unorthodox and so different for them, and just uh, spooky almost to have just this microphone like right on top of them, and they wanted to capture that just in your face sound and that's why that that record sounds so good is, is that is that close miking that they did it's also like got to get you into my life with the horns because paul's hearing this in an american radio and motown sounds and he wants that and so they're they're miking these poor uh musicians who are you know the the, the best of the best and they're like what in the hell because they didn't want their mistakes to be amplified you know, to be, right. they made a mistake. And so. Yeah. Well, and that's why, you know, when you, when you listen to God to get you into my life, you know, those horns are distorted. I mean, there's no doubt about that. There is, there is, it's almost like the, there's a fuzz pedal on them. And, there, and it's because those mics are just getting overloaded because they're just getting blasted with all uh, the, with all the energy coming out of the ends of the horns. And so, but it creates a real grit, did gritty ADT. sound. Didn't they do ADT with the, those horns as well? Can you talk about the ADT? As yeah. Well, talk about Revolver. Yeah. So ADT uh, stands for artificial double tracking. And so you'll notice in a lot of Beatles records, uh, there's dual vocals or, or sometimes somebody's vocaling, doing their own vocal twice. And so it, it's a doubling effect. It's a fairly common thing, especially if people don't have the, the most powerful of voices to uh, create. Uh, you basically record yourself twice, singing the part twice, you blend them together. Uh, and, uh, with some special techniques to make your voice just sound thicker. A uh, perfect example of this is Sting. You know, you know, it's very hard to find any police song where he's not double tracking his vocals. Um, but uh, they, uh, John Lennon in particular, I think was uh, loath to do a track more than once, if, especially if he felt like he nailed it. And so uh, they came up, Ken Townsend, the engineer there, came up with a very, very clever uh, way of creating what's called artificial double tracking. And what they would do is they would take a tape machine and, and their, their, um, their four track machines had two heads on them, a record head and a playback head. So they would, in, they would take the signal from the recording head and output that to a second machine and then record it on that and then take the playback head of that second machine and feed it back to the first one. Okay. And again, remember I talked earlier about using the oscillator to change and, and uh, affect the speed with the, with, they, would, they would alter the speed of the second machine so they could make it a little slower, a little faster. Um, they could do all sorts of things to manipulate that. But the whole idea is that second signal coming back, even though it's the same recording, it's slightly delayed, it's slightly off, uh, in terms of the timing as well as the pitch because okay. the second machine is being pitch varied a little bit. 
So when you blend those two together, it's almost like we have two singers going that they're slightly out of phase with each other and they're slightly uh, off pitch with each other. And it creates what's called this artificial double track. It's and if a you thickening wanna, agent. In it's a sense. thickening. It really does thicken. Yeah. If you want to listen to what I would recommend, if you really want to hear this, how this works, take Eleanor Rigby, put headphones on and listen to it. Listen to the verses that Paul sings and then listen when the chorus comes in, the all the lonely people part, the vocal changes. That's where the artificial double tracking starts right there. And you can hear it. And it's very clear because it's just the, the strings and the vocals. So if you want a, a perfect example of ADT, I would listen to Eleanor Rigby. And that became standard on really everything that they did. All yeah. Of their, yeah. All and of their I, vocals. I didn't Lennon call it the flangy thing? <laughs> put, Ken, put your flangy thing on. <laughs> so... Um, on Revolver, again, the luxury of time. They had some space. They were also had been indulging in, you know, hallucin LSD and stuff. So they had a very different idea of approaching life. And it was the songs with Rubber Soul and then moving on, the songs changed, as we all know, from the love songs to songs that are ambiguous, like Norwegian, Norwegian Wood. And theme songs, bigger songs of loneliness like Eleanor Rigby. Um, maybe we should, we talk, should we talk about Tomorrow Never Knows Now? Because it kind of sets the stage. It's really the benchmark or the milestone, I think, of that album. Yeah, that's my favorite Beatles song of all time, too. So I'd love to talk about that one. You know, a, a one-note song uh, out of all the, the, the beautiful melodies and songs they wrote, that's, that one just gets to me just because it's so out there in terms out of there. just totally out there so ahead of its time and yes. and so random uh for lack of a better word that it just it just worked uh just just uh, the chaos of it made it sound very deliberate uh in, in terms of uh, how they put it all together well you know what's interesting with tomorrow never knows and it's the style of mccartney versus lennon mccartney would tell you exactly and tell george this is what i hear and these are the notes so for no one on that one of the tracks there they had the, a great guy come in and play i think it was a, was it a french horn that they came in and played uh or is it yeah it's french horn or a, french a the piccolo trumpet was in yeah. another song i think yeah um i think that was penny lane mm -hmm. but so he's articulating the notes john comes in and says i want it to sound like a thousand tibetan monks chanting and i'm <laughs> yeah. the dalai lama singing on the mountaintop <laughs> so John, as Jeff Emmerich said, he couldn't even move a fader on the board. Paul, you know, knew exactly. So two different styles um, from that. But, you know, the drone of what, I guess that Paul did some tape loops at home on his Brunel tape recorders. Mm -hmm. And he brought in like 16 loops of different things, him playing distorted bass, guitar, wine glasses, and that they picked five of them to use. Yeah. And the most famous one is the one that everyone says sounds like a seagull, which is, I think, Paul yeah. laughing and, yes. and being pitch shifted. And uh, uh, that's the one that people uh, stand out the most on that one. And then George brought in um, the tambora, I guess, and the idea of, the, of that drone. It's amazing. Um, did that, backward, did that backwards. have the reverse drums and cymbals? I don't know if there's reverse drums on that. There's definitely reversed. Symbols, uh, I think. Uh, Something th is reversed. There could be. Uh, the, 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 um, the Indian instruments, certainly there's some, uh, some lead parts that are, and guitar that are backwards on that as well. I think there was a Mellotron on it. Mm -hmm. um, oh, that was the song. I'm looking at my notes. That was a song where Bob Dylan said, oh, I get it. You don't want to be cute anymore. <laughs> Yeah, bastard. I, I think I think my favorite thing in that though is is the the third verse um, where they use the Leslie speaker on the vocal, and uh, for those of you who don't know uh, what that is, um, the a Leslie cabinet is typically used with a Hammond organ, and it's a, it's a rotating speaker. It's literally a speaker that's spinning. And it's using, if you remember your high school physics class, it's the Doppler shift is what that is. And so uh, just when you're standing outside and you hear a fire truck coming towards you, the pitch is lower, then it gets higher, 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 and then it gets lower as it goes away uh, because of distance and it takes the, time, the sound time, uh, time to travel. It changes the frequency and the pitch that we hear even when the, the frequency is, is steady. So with a rotating speaker, as the speaker is moving around and you have it mic'd, 
there's going to be a little bit of a, of a pitch shifting with that as it moves backwards and forwards. And it creates that really nice swirly Hammond organ. It's kind of the classic Hammond organ sound when people pop that on. A, a guy I play in the band with, uh, a band I play with here, I play in a 70s disco cover band, and uh, he has a Leslie cabinet, and we actually recorded mm -hmm. a track with it once, and it was just a joy to listen to this thing, to see this thing working, this, this wonderful piece of machinery uh, working. And, uh, um, but what they decided to do was rig it so Lennon's vocals went through the Leslie speaker. So that third verse uh, that you hear, uh, it's, it's the, the speaker's being rotated like that, and it creates this really uh, uh, psychedelic sound. And just it's just a joy to listen to that, especially with headphones on. It's just really but cool. But it has the mountaintop that. feel that he wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the And Tibetan, it's such a change yeah. from the other verses. Yep. And that just goes to show you when you're producing, it's, and it's something I learned from you, which is there has to, something has to change in each part of the song to make it interesting. Mm -hmm. and has to build to something, yeah. Klaus Vormann was the artist who designed the cover for Revolver, and it's such a great album cover. And he was a bass player, and he played bass for John's uh, Plastic Ono band, I believe, in the 70s. I did not know that. What he said, he said at the time, listening to Tomorrow Never Knows, that it was frightening. And he said it was frightening because he was thinking about the typical Beatle fan who's listening to this and going, what in the hell am I hearing? I want my cute Beatles back. Exactly. And here I've got this turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. Yeah. Direct and quote from, from reading, Timothy Leary. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. It, really a direct quote. I mean, yeah, really. Literally. I, yes, yeah. I know. But it was reading the Tibetan Book of, yeah. of the Dead. So, you know, these innovative artists in the 60s, you know, that are, you know, out on the cutting edge, they had to, you know, just you know, have faith in their art. I mean, just, you know, the, the pushback that Brian Wilson got when he did Pet Sounds, you know, that the record company almost didn't want to release, you know, one of the greatest records of all time because it was just not, you know, singing about surfing in cars. And so, and not only that, but instrument Mike Love, Mike Love didn't like it. Yeah. Own, what are you doing? Yeah. And he was, you know, genius can be really quite complicated for people. But, you know, yeah. I'm going to just say this Jeff Emmerich book is amazing. And one of the things he talks about in here is Taxman which is the lead off song. And, you know, George had three songs on Revolver. And George Martin typically picked the running order for the earlier albums. And, and he put this one first. Um, George had such a, uh, I think, lack of confidence in his guitar playing. And, and George Emmerich, and I don't know that this is true or not, this is from his perspective, that George would struggle doing a guitar solo, like take after take after take. And it was... Paul and George Martin were getting very frustrated with Harrison and said, well, you know, we're going to have Paul play the lead on Taxman. Mm -hmm. Paul and George went off, George Harrison went off and sulked for a bit. Did his, then he came back. And of course, in two takes, Paul plays this ripping, amazing guitar solo, care, you know, can do anything. And I'm sure George was fine, but it's, you know, George started to come into his own on really Revolver, where his, mm -hmm. his uh, input was respected and actually recorded. What other songs uh, whoops, strike you as um, something special, you know, that's you've got, got, you, got to get you into your life, into my life? For No One is, I think, on, the, on this album, is it? Yeah. Again, it's, it's the sadness of relationships. You can hear that in that song. Mm -hmm. how they're young men, but they're writing with such angst and real-life-ism. It's a very different feeling than the other happy stuff that they were doing. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head what else is on that album. Um, Dr. Robert. I think that's a drug. Uh, oh, a she drug. said, she said, you know, when they were doing the fight, they were getting ready to do the final mix of Revolver. And they were short a song. So they went in there and they got, they, then John had, she said, she said, which was based on their trip to LA where they were doing LSD with Peter Fonda. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what Peter Fonda said, that the late Peter Fonda said, he knew what it was like to be dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and Jeff Emmerich described it as a rough song, probably not one of their best. But it's a very, it's a very mature sounding 
album and you know they had the very speed of the tape but they also then as they moved into Sgt. Pepper they moved into the tape syncing and particularly with Strawberry Fields Forever maybe you want to share about yeah yeah so there, there was a technology that did come out uh, called SMPTE, and it's actually still used now as a way to get tape machines to talk to each other. And you, you can basically put a tone on one of the tracks of one of the tape machines, and it'll basically drive the, the other tape machine through electronic circuitry and keep them in sync with each other. And they had to kind of improvise that a little bit uh, when they were um, recording Sgt. Pepper, uh, in particular, Day in the Life. Uh, they had the... The, the basic tracks going, but then they wanted to have more tracks freed up for the big uh, orchestra crescendo. So uh, they were able to uh, rig the two machines together. Uh, and actually it was very crudely how they did it. They would actually mark on the tape with a little wax pen uh, exactly where uh, each one was supposed to start. And then they still had to hit record and play at the same time on the two machines to get them going at the same time. But it would, this, this, uh, this tone that they put, they put like a 50 hertz tone on one of the tracks to mm-hmm. drive the other one uh, and keep the two machines in sync. And uh, it, was, it was innovative and, and, uh, and it was ahead of its time and it, and it worked uh, to, to make that happen. But what would happen was you would, you, it was, it's machine specific and every machine has its own little peccadillos back then. And so uh, what would happen is you would take the tape and you put it on a different machine and it wouldn't sync up the right same way. Uh, so, it's, okay. so it's not as standard as digital is now where everything's pretty much the same. You know, we're using the same waveforms and the same sampling rate and all those kind of things that, that happen in the modern studio. But back then it was machine by machine. And then the early seventies is when SMPTE really started to happen. And uh, that, that, that tone uh, is still used today as, as part of the industry. Well, in Sgt. Pepper, you've got, um, again, the uh, MVP maybe might be the Abbey Road sound effect locker. They <laughs> yeah. were able to pull out all of the, you know, the, the uh, animal sounds for Good Morning, or I think it was uh, Good Morning. Uh, not yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, the end of Good Morning, Good Morning. Yeah. And the steam engine sounds of uh steam organ sounds excuse me for being for the benefit benefit of mr kite yeah and that's another example of that randomness you know that the the story is that they had all those clips and they just cut them up and threw them in the air and then randomly taped them together i don't know if that really happened but the legend of that's pretty fun to think about just that uh how it randomly and it sounds like it was designed to be that way and just that that randomness is just is just really cool, and that that actually carried over. You know, uh, Emmerich did a lot of work with Pink Floyd at, at Abbey Road in the '70s, and and there was a lot of you know you think about uh, uh, Dark Side of the Moon and Animals and some of those uh, uh, Wish You Were Here. There's a lot of those kind of random accident type of things that happen on those records as well. So that that theme of of we want to just create sound and just have it kind of happen organically uh, is definitely an Abbey Road uh, staple. Well, and even to think that Strawberry Fields Forever and I believe Penny Lane were were recorded at the same time and not even on that album. I know. They were AB signals, singles, I think. Mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. And with but, Penny, Penny Lane, I think that they were working on building several piano parts to create a denser rhythm. Uh, so constant innovation. Yep. Uh, what else was happening on... on uh, Again, I think a lot of use of the Leslie was used, maybe on mm-hmm. Lovely Rita. They also sped that up. Yep. Uh, t- some tape, ac- tape echo as well there. You know, uh, a lot of ta- uh, tape speed variation too on the vocals on that record in particular. When I'm 64, you know, they sped it up to make Paul sound like a, uh, a real super young, you know, like a teenager almost. Uh, so his voice is really high on that. You think about uh, Lovely Rita, John's backing vocals are, are echoed very heavily, but also pitched up as well. A uh, lot of very speed on the drums. Uh, you know, Ringo's drums sound just cavernous on, on uh, Sgt. Pepper. Pepper. And you think about the fills on Like a Day in the Life and uh, Lovely Rita and so just these really low, low, low drums uh, that, that come out there. So just lots of uh, speed uh, variation there with the, ta- the taping. Do you think that he was using the tea towels during Sgt. Pepper or did he say that later? For I think White that album? was later. I think it was later. He switched drum kits uh, at some point, I think right around probably when um, Get Back was recorded. He switched to those yellow uh, 
maple, I think they were Gretsch, Ludwig maples, it, Lug, Ludwig maples yeah. and, and had the two, had the two rack toms instead of the one. Um, so there was uh, just some different, different sounding drums, but uh, the, the drum that I think are, are, are the most tea toweled are if you listen to um, come together, uh, you know, the fill at the beginning, the boom, that, that, that's, it sounds like he's hitting books. I mean, they're just really, really dead uh, sounding drums. And it's uh, not for everybody. Not everybody likes yeah. that. Yeah. And even his snare, I mean, some people like it pitched. I think that you like your snare a little bit higher. That's what I remember from our recording. So it's, yeah. again, it's a, it's a preference for each drummer of how they want to do things. Yeah. I like the tight, cracky Stuart Copeland, Carter Beaufort type of snare drum sound. Uh, it's kind of my favorite. And so, uh, uh, but I don't mind, you know, the really heavy ones, you know, the, the, the bottom, uh, the, the only drums I really don't like the sound of are like the really the seventies LA studio sound where those drums are like super dead, like Don Henley's drums, I think are the, the nastiest sounding drums of the seventies. Just that listen to that song, these shoes and just those drums just sound awful. What about um, Hal Blaine? Oh, he's amazing. You, you yeah. like his drums, how they I do. It. Yeah, okay. I do. Yeah. And just, I, and I, I like his playing too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do you think of, um, Oh my God, who was I going to say? <laughs> this is just a random Phil Collins. I, uh, I like his earlier stuff. Like his, when, he, when he played with like the early Genesis, he was doing a lot of really like odd time signature, fusion-y, uh, prog rocky type of stuff. And then the poppy stuff is, is just not, it, it's just pretty bland drumming. But his drumming in the early days was really quite remarkable. And, uh, and his, of course, his drum sounds are, are uh, pretty legendary. That, um, they are, but you know, there was, I think, just that time when all drums sounded cr pretty weird. Like mm -hmm. maybe it was the 80s. It was just, uh, I don't know. I, I can't describe it. I, I love the sound of Ringo's drums. I love those Ludwigs. I did too. I did too. The 80s, the 80s drums were, they got into the, what's called gated reverb, which is kind of, and that was actually discovered by accident um, uh, based on a, uh, there was a, a reverb that was on, but then there was also a, a gate on it that kind of cut it off really quickly. And they just said, oh, wow, that sounds really cool. Let's do that some more. So a gated reverb is a reverb that doesn't naturally decay. Like if you go, you go into a gymnasium and you yell, your, your voice echoes and it just kind of slowly dies down. Whereas a gated reverb comes in full blast and then stops on a dime. And so like the drum fill on in the air tonight, you know, that ba da 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 ba -dum, boom, that's gated yeah. reverb. Okay. And that just became the 80s. Uh, signature signature yeah. reverb sound you listen to addicted to love uh the drums on that uh by robert palmer you know this classic 80s drum sound i never cared for that uh too much um, i agree i agree uh, so I, I like the more natural sounding drums and i thought ringo's drums sounded really good uh white album i thought was amazing revolver white album yeah uh, with the exception to come together i don't i don't really like the toms on that one as much um uh, but uh, yeah, that, that middle era, I think, is when his drums sound uh, really present and crisp. And a lot of that also has to do with the miking. Uh, again, we talked about close miking. They, they, that was one of the areas where they, they were sticking mics right in front of the bass drum, uh, which was uh, sacrilege uh, back in the early, early days to get it that close. They're worried about distorting their equipment. And, and, but just to really get that natural sound of the drums, I think, was really uh, uh, an innovative thing. And that's where Ringo's drums started to sound really good. Well, by the time they get to the White Album, the Beatles are somewhat frustrated because they really want eight track because they know that American studios have eight track. Mm -hmm. Abbey Road had an eight track machine, but at EMI Abbey Road, they would not bring out any new equipment until their engineers had a chance to take everything apart, every piece, reassemble it, and test the durability because what I read about their approach was that if we're, you know, recording the London Symphony Orchestra, we can't afford for this new technology to break down. So it's a very interesting thing. So they've got it, but they haven't had the chance to, to bring it into the studio and the Beatles were getting frustrated uh, toward the later part of 68. I think they meet Magic Alex, who's like, selling them a song about, I'm going to build a 72 track studio in your mm -hmm. new Apple studio. And all he's building is like a light that has a box that has lights in it, <laughs> spinning light. And they're like, wow. Yeah. And, and George Martin is like, you know, rolling his eyes yeah. whenever he sees that. So there was that tension building in the white album. 
Yeah. They did with Hey Jude. That was part of the one album sessions. They went to Trident. Yeah, I think that was their first A-track recording, if I remember. That's but right. They, they had recorded, I think their first record that they recorded away from Abbey Road was actually uh, Fixing a Hole on... Uh, on uh, Sergeant Pepper. Sergeant Pepper. I think, I think that was actually recorded maybe at Trident as well. Um, but, it was uh, because they were, uh, Abbey Road was still um, blocking time for other artists, much to the dismay of the Beatles, because they <laughs> thought they were the only gig in town. And, you know, somewhere around Rubber Soul... George Martin left EMI and started his own company called, I think it was like the Associated Independent Re Recording Producers or something, Air. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, I think smart on his part. Yeah. But the White, White Album to me is like my, I think it's my favorite album to listen to mm -hmm. with everything that they did. And again, bringing in all the techniques that they used, the ADT, the wind-up piano on Rocky Raccoon, um, probably some, oh, oh the, the, uh, <laughs> number nine. Number yeah, the nine. tape loops there, yeah. <laughs> Yoko and him, it's like, yeah. and, then, and then they find you naked. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you've listened to that recently. No, I haven't, but I mean, the, the, whole, the whole playing it backwards and they're supposed to say, turn me on dead man. And that was one of the clues that uh, McCartney was dead. And <laughs> But you know, one of the things is that they also, the, the tape loops we could say is really sampling. And so here when it they is. brought in Remember how they would recite the poem like on I Am the Walrus or something? You know, that's sampling. And that's yeah. what they're doing today is that yeah. they're taking something else and they're putting, and here are the Beatles ahead of that. And the same thing goes for, I think at the time of Paperback, uh, paperback Writer, and probably Rain, is they recorded promotional videos instead of doing live performances to promote their work. Yeah, they were 20 years they, ahead of MTV. Totally. Yeah. And, and you talk about sampling in the 60s too, the Mellotron, which you mentioned earlier, the, the keyboard that was you know, famously used on Strawberry Fields and a couple other tracks that they, they played on. Um, uh, that, uh, that was basically an early sampler uh, that actually had uh, rolls of tape inside of it. You'd press the key and it would actually spin a tape loop over a, uh, over a tape head and uh, would, would play and, and then it would spring back when you took, the, took it off. Um, so... I think Paul still has the original Mellotron that they had. I think he still owns that. I think Paul has hoarded all of the equipment. And, uh, you know, he still is able to fit into his actual clothes from the 60s. And he, he recently mentioned that. And I'm thinking, you know, he's going to, there's going to be like the Paul McCartney Museum one day of yeah. all of this stuff. And I will say with respect to the Beatles instruments, around Rubber Soul, they got um, the Fender Stratocasters, those blue Fenders, uh, John and George Harrison. And then Paul got the Rickenbacker. Yeah. And then they bought the casino guitars. Yep. So another new flavor. And I give credit to Paul. I mean, Paul pretty much plays his same stuff year after year. He's played his Rickenbackers all these year, years. The Martin D28. Yep. Yeah. The Hoffner, which I, yeah. I would, I'd like him to put the Hoffner in its case and put it away. Yeah. Bring back the Rickenbacker. Yeah. Do you prefer uh, uh, the McCartney uh, Beatles bass sound? Do you like the Rick better than the, the Hoffner bass sound? I believe that I do, though I will say I was listening to the Beatles live at the BBC. It's phenomenal. And if you have a chance, go to maybe YouTube and watch um, I'm a Loser because ball, uh, Paul's bass, that was... Freudian slip. <laughs> Aging Dr. Freud. Um, Paul's bass in that is so unbelievable. And, you know, he it, how he plays it, he's also distorting a, so, some of the notes too, which makes it more interesting. It's a great, I, I far prefer it to then the recorded version. It's really good. And so we get to Abbey Road and... George Harrison has found out all about the Moog synthesizer on a trip to LA. Someone had it. And so he ordered a fancy one and it had, you ever see an original Moog? It had like all these panels. It, it takes a whole room. Uh, it's, it's, it looks like an old telephone operator's board where you're literally, you're, you're literally connecting oscillators through quarter inch cables. Um, yeah. And then it's connecting to your keyboard to make the sounds. He had two key keyboards with it were five octaves. Mm -hmm. and um, used it on, they used it on Because. 
Yep. He used it a little bit on Maxwell Silver, Silver Hammer. Hammer. Uh, they used and, it on uh, I Want You, She's So Heavy. Yeah. Uh, the, you, I think that, that was noise. the white, it was called a white noise yep. generator. Yep. And of course, and, here comes the sun too. Um, uh, the little solo in the middle of that is the, is the Moog as well. I don't know if it's Moog or Moog. Uh, if, if people Moog say either Moog. one. Yeah. 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 Potato, potato. Yeah. But, you but, know, they, uh, they sell some pedals and stuff these days, but it's not quite the same as having, there's like a, is it called the Grandma? It's like a, a newer version of the Moog synthesizer. Probably runs about $1,000, but it's like, you know, uh, I think that you love synthesizers. I think you could probably get lost in space oh, for, with uh, synthesizer heaven. Uh, oh, especially with all the plugins that are available now that you can get. You can get like the entire like, you know, 1980s keyboard collection on, you know, and one thing on your computer and play all these great sounds. And, and, uh, and I'm sure you can get it just about any keyboard sound uh, from the 60s, 70s and on uh, through the, the plugins that are out there now. Oh, you had made a comment one day when we were uh, fooling around with some of my keyboards and you said, you know, this would, back in the day, this might cost $250,000, all the sounds that we have on this program. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the old, uh, if the old Fairlight uh, synthesizer in the early '80s was literally a quarter, quarter of a million dollars in 1980 money, uh, and it was just an eight-bit sampler, which is like you know, your iPhone samples uh, things better than that now. And and uh, just the technologies, the change that's uh, that's uh, that's come about is just is just remarkable. I sometimes like have this like I go on like a fantasy about like what if the Beatles in the 60s, like somebody transported back and gave them like a modern synthesizer and didn't tell anybody and they just had this secret um, keyboard that they could like, what, what would have come out of them having the technology like, like a keyboard sound like they have now, what would have come out of them back then uh, with the technology that we have now? I just kind of wonder what that would be like. Well, I mean, they worked very hard to be new and to be innovative and even George Harrison uh, released his Wonderwall, the electronic music album featuring the Moog or the Moog, whatever, however you say it. Um, maybe the challenge is what made them greater of having to find solutions and to, you know, to, to create. Nowadays, it's, it's, you know, you could easily put something together with Logic Pro has so many built-in loops. I mean, you could do a song where you're not playing anything. It's a very different... Mm -hmm. feeling what as a producer and as someone who records others um, and helps guide them in their music what do you recommend what are what are some things to focus on for folks who want to record their music at home in the vein of the Beatles or you're a great songwriter maybe you want to do something simply what do you suggest what's important I think what I like to do personally is blend the old with the new. Uh, and, and there's some people that are a hundred percent digital. Everything's online, everything's plugins. And I still like in my studio, I still have an analog mixer right here, which everything goes through first. And I have a, an old, I have an analog uh, tube uh, mic preamp. Um, and so I, even though I record digitally, I still use an outboard synthesizer. I still use, you know, real guitars. And, and uh, um, so I, I think, blending the old with the new is the way I would kind of do it uh, is that you can still have all the, the control and the perfectionism that you're allowed to have with the new technology, but you can still get a, a different sound. I think that's what, and I'm probably sounding like, you know, an old fart here in saying this, but that it's music now that's made all sounds the same because it's all coming from inside of a computer. And so the, the nuances of a room or of an instrument uh, that made music sound different uh, and, and there was variety in music that just isn't there now. Um, and so I think using older equipment and, and, and combining the analog with the digital, I think can, can still help people create an innovative sound uh, that, that doesn't sound like everyone else. And just, you know, I want variety back in, uh, in, in popular music in terms of, I'm not talking about the music itself. I'm just talking about the sound of it. Um, and, and, I, and it's kind of hard to, to explain what I mean by that, but just songs, studios had their own sound, you know, you know, you know, talk about like yes, sound city you and, you know, or sunset. That's right. Yeah, sunset. All, all those, all those studios had a sound to them and, you just don't get that anymore with everything being inside of a computer. And so whatever we can do to create uniqueness in, in how we record and how we capture sound, I'd like to get back to that a little bit more. 
So great times. Yeah, it really was. And, and I just I've, uh, valued your friendship uh, musically and otherwise all these years. And uh, uh, it's been great. I, I, you know, I just love talking Beatles with you and we could, we could do this for hours, I'm sure. But uh, appreciate you having me on today. Absolutely. And I thank you so much. And I look forward to maybe, uh, maybe we'll record some things and share them and figure them out. And um, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up with a little bit over about an hour and 11 minutes, but that's okay. We've had fun. We hope you've had fun too. And this podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, all the typical podcast platforms. And then it's also, we upload a uh, video on the YouTube channel so you can watch that and subscribe and you'll actually get to see us, I think, for this uh, podcast where we're chatting. So Scott, my man, be well, stay safe. Love to you and your family. Yep, you the same. And uh, we will chat again. 